Welcome to this episode of Disease Du Jour on equine protozoal myeloencephalitis, brought to you by Merck Animal Health. Our guest for this episode on EPM is Dr. Nicola Pusterla. He is a professor of equine internal medicine and dentistry at the University of California Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. His research focuses on equine infectious diseases with an emphasis on molecular epidemiology. Dr. Pusterla also leads the UC Davis Equine Infectious Disease Research Laboratory. Thank you, Dr. Pusterla, for joining us today on Disease Du Jour to talk about EPM. Good morning, Kim. Thanks for having me today on this podcast. Well, we know there's lots of information out there on EPM. Could you just give us a quick refresher on what is EPM and what causes EPM? I'd, I'd love to do that. It depends a little bit on how much time you have. I'm just kidding on that one. So EPM, as, as you mentioned earlier on, equine or is protozoal, that's a specific organism, myelencephalitis, which means that it affects generally spinal cord, but it can also affect brain, brain stem, as example. So this is a condition that was, you know, if you look, if you look historically, it's a condition that was recognized in, in the mid-70s in horses that presented typically with asymmetrical neurological deficits ataxia generally for perceptive deficit and muscle atrophy. And as these horses were investigated at that time, they found this protozoal organism. And interestingly, the initial organism was thought to be Toxoplasma gondii, and that was, that was misinterpreted and was changed later on to Sarcosystis neurona, which is the main organism, multi-complex and protozoal organism that is associated with EPM. This is an interesting organism, Sarcosystis neurona, as any sarcosist uses a two-host life cycle. And I'm, tell me if I'm getting too much information there. But the interesting part is that the definitive host is the North American opossum. There's a lot of them in, in North America, which defines the geographic distribution of this disease. EPM cases, if they naturally acquire infectious sporocysts that are shed through this definitive host can only be found in area where the definitive host actually lives. Interestingly, the, the horses become infected by the ingestion of these infectious forces that contaminate the environment, water and food. And within the horse, then most of the horses will actually deal with this organism without developing any clinical disease. However, a very small percentage of horses, and we know that there's some risk factors, age plays a role, stress plays a role, we're looking at you know, comorbidities, we're looking at exercise, the environment plays a role, so very complex interaction there. In some instances, that organism will penetrate and invade the central nervous system, leading to EPM, or this syndrome. Um, and leading to neurological deficit that interestingly, you know, one of the commonality of these neurological deficits, although EPM can cause a wide range of neurological deficit, one of the hallmark is asymmetry, which means that, you know, kind of randomly affects one side more than the other. It can also be multifocal, which means that it may affect multiple areas of the central nervous system. That's why you may see a horse with cranial nerve deficit plus ataxia, may have brainstem plus spinal cord 
affected, causing neurological deficit. So if you look, interestingly, um, if we look at the role, you know, what, what, is, what is the role of the horse? You know, I was, I was telling you that Sarcasis Cicerona has a two-host life cycle, has the Virginian opossum as the definitive host, and a lot of intermediate hosts, which are hosts that become infected, asexual replication occurs in them, and then the organism and cysts, the form of these cysts, and these cysts are very resistant, and they will stay with the host, the host dies, we're looking at, you know, intermediate hosts, we're looking at, you know, raccoon, we're looking at armadillo, we're looking at skunk, we're looking at cats, we're looking at passerine birds, we're even looking at sea otters, and, and that's just different, completely different um, a history how, you know, um, ocean mammals become infected with, you know, protozoal organisms that are actually associated with a terrestrial life cycle. Different story. And I'm glad to expand on that um, if you want me to. I'm losing my track here. Okay, uh, going back, horses. So, definite intermediate host, um, if they die out and they are consumed by the opossum, what may happen is that these infectious sporocysts, as they are ingested, will become active. And now sexual replication happens in the bowel of the opossum, leading to the shedding of these infectious organisms. Now, where do horses fit in there? And it's still a little bit controversial. For many, many, many years, it was thought that horses are what we call the dead-end house, which means that they're an aberrant house. It's just a, you know, accident of nature that horses become infected with infectious sporocysts. The sporocysts may cause asexual replication. Some of the merozoites may invade the central nervous system, leading to EPM. But in most of these horses, the cyst that defines the intermediate host, the formation of the cyst does not happen in horses, which means that the protozoal organism dies within the horse, which means that a dead horse, if scavenged by an opossum, which is very unlikely to happen, does not represent a risk in perpetuating the life cycle. Now, there is actually one case report published out there that shows that horses can actually have cysts in skeletal musculature, meaning that horses can be both aberrant host and intermediate host, which changes a little bit the dynamic of this disease, not in perpetuating the life cycle, but potentially explaining why horses can remain seropositive for extended period of time, and why horses that have been exposed in their life and are potentially moved to countries, to other continents where EPM isn't recognized, may end developing EPM months or years down the road. So that's just to finish the life cycle of Sarcosystis neurona. Now, there are other organisms out there that we need to recognize, and I think that's relevant because of the immunodiagnostics that we use. Sarcosystis neurona makes the bulk of EPM cases. You know, the percentage, it's hard to come up with a percentage, but I would say close to you know, 85 to 90% of the EPM cases are caused by Sarcosystis neurona. In the mid-90s, towards the um, end of the, the 90s, another Hypercomplex protozoal organism was identified, and the name of that one is Neospora husei, named after Dr. 
diffuse. And for those who are familiar with Neospora caninum, it's closely relative, that Neospora caninum causes reproductive losses in cattle, but also causes neuromuscular disease in dogs. If I look, and I can only speak from the from what we see here on the Western in the Western US, 12 to 15 percent of our EPM cases are actually due to Neospora hughesii, and and this is an interesting organism, and I don't want to go too much into detail, but we have done a little bit more studies on this organism. We know that this organism has a spread across the entire U.S. and probably worldwide as well. So it's not just a Californian exotic disease. The other interesting part which um, we have discovered mostly by, by coincidence is that this organism infects horses. We know that approximately 30% of horses in the U.S. test positive, and we're looking at healthy horses. So we know that it's a fairly common organism. But the interesting part is, once that organism is within the host, it stays within the host, which means that horses are considered intermediate hosts, not like Sarcosis de It is very clear that for Neosprachusii, the horse is the intermediate host. We also know that during times of immunosuppression, one of them being gestation, that's the way this organism is actually retained in the cattle industry. During this late gestation, the organism is reactivated, and in some instances, it will cross the uteroplacental eunuch and invade the fetus, leading to different outcomes. One is abortion. The other one is the birth of an immunocompetent, a non-affected animal that is now latently infected, which means that Neosprachusii is very effectively maintained in the horse population through vertical transmission, which means that it's transmitted from the dam that is persistently infected and experiences a reactivation during late gestation to the offspring. Now, you thought you were done with the protozoal organism, I just have to put a little, a little bit, expand a little bit on more, more on, on, on one other organism. There's another organism, Toxoplasma gondii. We talked about that one early on in, uh, you know, in the 1974 when the organism was initially discovered because we know that Toxoplasma gondii is a well-recognized apicomplex protozoal organism in human beings, but also in other mammals. It was recognized, I missed, classified as Toxoplasma gondii. Since then, Toxoplasma hasn't been looked at too much. There's two studies that were recently published, one or two years ago, that looked at Toxoplasma gondii, and, and it seems that Toxoplasma gondii can actually play a role in some EPM cases. How exactly, we don't know. That is, you know, brand new information out there. So I don't want to excite too many people on this topic. It's something to follow up in the next few years, going to look at actually how frequently can we find a horse with EPM signs that is, you know, is infected where the central nervous system has been invaded by Toxoplasma gonda. So in, in a nutshell, you know, if you're looking at EPM, two main protozoal organisms, Sarcosis neurona, and Neospora QDI. Okay, well, let's uh, 
let's switch gears just a little bit for veterinarians because they will come in to see a clinical presentation of a horse with various signs. So what defines an EPM case for a veterinarian? And I know you have said multiple times in your presentations in the past, veterinarians must start with a good diagnosis. I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, in our profession, we're fairly quick at moving into diagnostics. And, and we have to go back and, and, and do the, the basic homework, which is the history and the physical and neurological evaluation or even orthopedic evaluation of any patient. And it starts with, you know, what, what is EPM? I mean, EPM can mimic any neurological condition. So it, it is a mimicker and it is a common neurological disease. If, if we look at, you know, all infectious neurological diseases consistently, you know, we, we had, you know, surges of West Nile, you know, West Nile epidemic, but beyond that, EPM is definitely one, number one, one of the high ranked infectious neurological diseases that we encounter. So we have to put that one on the differential, but where does it generally start? It starts with the history. We know that EPM is a progressive, and I want to put a disclaimer. There's a textbook presentation, and then there's all the others, you know, the gray zone. And I deal generally with the gray one, the, the one that aren't very clear. But going from a, you know, the perspective that common presentation are generally related to common condition, we're looking at a progressive disease. So this is the horse that the owner will refer us it's just something off. I'm, I'm not sure if he's lame. This, this horse for like weeks and months now has been stumbling. I think he's getting weak. That's, that's kind of the frustrating case. Is it lame? Is it weak? Is it neurologic? I do not know exactly. And that's the owner's perspective. And the veneering is generally called to these cases that may be complex cases. So it's very important to take the history into account, to do a full physical evaluation, to do a neurological evaluation and to do an orthopedic evaluation if the horse is deemed to be lame. And based on the neurological assessment, the idea of the neurological assessment is, is to be able to localize within the central nervous system. So first define the neurological deficit, but also localize and to truly have that neuroanatomical localization. And, and we know that EPM or the organism that are associated with EPM will generally cause asymmetrical, and just want to emphasize, asymmetrical deficit. It's rare to have deficits that are equal on the right and the left side. So the unilateral, the unilateral, well, I can find that. Um, the unilateral presentation of neurological deficit is a hint that we're looking at a focal disease. On top of that, EPM likes to affect multiple sites. So we're looking at a multifocal asymmetrical disease. Multifocal is, you know, multiple neuroanatomical sites affected, leading to, but not always, unilateral, various unilateral neurological deficits. You may see a horse with, you know, cranial nerve deficit and ataxia, as example. So we're looking at progression, progressive disease, neurological deficits that may be multifocal, that may be asymmetrical, 
And another hallmark is generally muscle atrophy. So if I, if I had to paint, if you give me a paintbrush, I'm not a good painter. Let's say, you know, I ask my daughter, I explain what EPM is, and, and I ask her to paint a horse in, in her mind or paint it. I would say, you know, what would be the typical presentation? She would say, well, I would paint, or, you know, I, I foresee a horse that shows asymmetrical weakness, asymmetrical ataxia, maybe gait abnormality, and muscle atrophy. If, if we were on the phone and you as an owner of Venance will call me up and say, this is the kind of case I had, I would say, you got a test for psychosis neuron and neostrahusia because this may be an EPM case. Now, I, I recognize that there are other, you know, there's other clinical presentation. We can see acute and peracute recumbency. We can see cranial nerve deficit only. We see behavioral changes. We see, you know, cerebral, brainstem lesion as well. But these are generally the less frequent ones. Now, I want to also mention that if following the review of the histories and following the physical, neurological, and potential lameness exam, if everything points towards the case having not EPM, then the veterinarian should not test for EPM. It's relevant that diagnostics are directed based on the problem and the differential. Even if EPM is down the list, the veterinarian needs to do its diligence to work out the more likely causes before going down the list and looking at EPM. Unfortunately, EPM is easy to test for. I mean, EPM is not easy to test for, but we can test for the presence, indirect presence of organism through immunodiagnostic, looking at you know, antibody against psychosis, neuron and neostrohusii. And, and, and this is why it, it, it is such a difficult assessment. We recognize that you know, up to two thirds of horses in the US will have been infected and exposed to sarcocystis neurona, which means that it, you can find a seropositive horse in almost every single pasture, which doesn't mean that that horse has EPM. So going back, good assessment of history, neurological deficit, putting together a list of differential. If EPM is top differential, test for EPM. We can potentially expand on how to test. If EPM is down the list, Start looking for other differential first before engaging into immunodiagnostics. So, Dr. Pusterla, could you tell us when do you recommend testing for EPM? Today's Disease to Shore podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health's Protozil Antiprotozole Pellets, 1.56% diclazoral. When it comes to EPM, every minute matters. Easy to administer protozil, top dressed alfalfa pellets are a safe and effective treatment that starts working fast without a loading dose. Learn more at MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com. Do not use protozil in horses with known hypersensitivity to diclazoral. Safety has not been studied in breeding, pregnant, or lactating horses. For complete safety information, please read label. So uh, your question, your question is pertinent, and it, there's a lot of debate out there. 
excuse me. If if Avinia wants to have you know more complete information, is actually a very nice consensus statement that was issued by the ACVIM and was put together by a, a group of people that have a great interest and understand have done research on on that topic. But you know, to go back to your question, once once a horse is deemed to likely being infected with either psychosis neuronal nosprachusei, based on history and clinical presentation, it would be nice to be able to have some laboratory confirmation. Unfortunately, it's, it's you know it's difficult to find the organism. The, the only way you can find the organism is just generally on on necropsy, finding the you know organism within a lesion in the central nervous system. That is considered a gold standard. That's not an option in as an anti-mortem diagnostic test. So what we have to rely on to really support a diagnosis of EPM is the detection of antibodies. And antibody means that the horse has been infected, has mounted an immunological reaction and has produced antibody to psychosis neurona or neosporahusii. And and the big the big debate that we have is is not to detect the antibodies. The technology is there and we're for, very fortunate today, 2020, to have quantitative tests rather than qualitative tests, which means that you know the initial test, the Western blood, is a qualitative test, positive or negative doesn't put much into numbers, and we know that numbers are essential when we want to follow up these cases. So today we use different platforms, the, you know, there's ELISAs, there's indirect fluorescence antibody testing. And these are very reliable, robust tests. What is still debatable is what is the right biological sample to use. The convenient sample is blood. The less convenient sample, the more accurate sample is cerebrospinal fluid. So I'm going to spend on, on both of them, if you're okay with that. So blood is a good screening tool. The value of immunodiagnostic um, in blood is in its negative predictive value, which is, you know, the probability that a negative result is associated with a horse not, and I want to repeat that, not having EPX. So if a horse has a chronic condition that Venians feel like it may be EPM. If blood is pulled, blood is tested, the result comes back, it's negative, which meaning antibody titers below the detection level, that very likely will rule out EPM. On the other side, if it's positive, that tells the, the venians that the horse has been infected, that doesn't necessarily mean that the horse has EPM because we know that, as I mentioned earlier on, we've done a seroepidemiological study on healthy horses. I'm, I'm, I want to reemphasize that. Healthy horses across the US, approximately 70% of them will have been infected with sarcocystis neurona, which means that there's a high seroprevalence in healthy horses. And it's difficult to then distinguish, well, if this horse is seropositive, is it because it has EPM or is it unrelated to the neurological deficit. And this horse is just infected without any neuroinvasion, without any clinical impact. This is why if, if a case like that occurs where the horse has clinical signs compatible with EPM and is seropositive, then there's two options. Option one is treat the horse, reevaluate the horse, 
see if the horse has actually responded. And if the horse responds, that's an other, that's other evidence to support the diagnosis. Specifically, you know, if the horse is treated with an FDA-approved antiprotozoal drug. On the other side, if, if, if a veneer wants to be a little bit more academic and truly wants to put greater faith into the support of neuroinvasion of sarcocystis or neospora, a CSF needs or cerebrospinal fluid sample needs to be collected with the idea to test for antibodies. So truly, the goal here is to determine are there intrathecally derived antibodies? Are there antibodies that have been produced within the central nervous system detected in the cerebrospinal fluid that would be evidence of neuroinvasion? And neuroinvasion doesn't happen without causing neurological deficit. At least we haven't recognized that. Now, there's a little caveat to that, and there's always a caveat with any diagnostic tool. And the caveat is, if the CSF sample is negative, then EPM has been ruled out. So EPM is ruled out if the CSF sample is negative. If the CSF sample is positive, <clears throat> that supports a diagnosis of EPM. But one needs also to be aware that a positive result can happen for other reasons than just the antibody production within the central nervous system. One of these reasons is blood contamination. If the peripheral blood has a high titer to sarcocystis neurona, using sarcocystis neurona because it's the most prevalent one, then you can imagine that if blood can contaminate the CSF, antibodies that are present in the blood will be detected in the CSF. So that will give a positive result, but the antibodies are derived from blood and not derived from production within the central nervous system. The other potential reason for positive CSF is that antibodies follow gradients from a high gradient to a low gradient, which means that if there's a high, a very high antibody titer in peripheral blood, it is possible that a very small amount of these antibodies will cross the blood-brain barrier and be detected in the cerebrospinal fluid. Therefore, today, the best potential way to actually determine the intrathecal production of antibodies is by using CSF indices, which is, you know, looking at antibodies to that specific organism, Sarcocystis neurona neosporatusei, and put it in the perspective of other solutes that are distributed in blood and CSF. And one of them can be immunoglobulin or albumin. The reality is that, you know, not a single lab in the U.S. will offer all the testing for, you know, antibodies and albumin and total immunoglobulin in blood and CSF. So that's a elegant and probably the best way to do business in the diagnostic world. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's an unpractical, unfeasible way to do that. So what a group from, from um, Kentucky and the Glock Center and Dr. Reed and uh, one of the diagnostic labs, their equine diagnostic solution came up with is looking at ratio. And the concept of ratio is a very appealing one, which is looking at 
the antibody titer in serum divided by the antibody titer in the CSF. And if there is a surplus of antibodies in the CSF, you can imagine that that ratio will be fairly low. And there's a cutoff that has been established for the ELISA, and there's a cutoff that's also been established for the indirect fluorescence antibody test. However, that ratio only works if there is no evidence of gross blood contamination and if there is no, let's say, underlying vasculopathy where the, the vessels are leaky and there's more diffusion from blood into CSF. But that's a very practical. So we're looking at, let's be practical here. Let's not make these too complicated to the point that, you know, nobody's going to do the testing. But if this is performed, serum and CSF collected and run at the same time, that ratio can really support the production of antibodies to sarcosis and Osprosa in the central nervous system, which then would truly support a diagnosis of EPM. Well, that's a, a great explanation of when to test and how the tests work. So let's step into the next part of it. There are FDA-approved treatments available for equine EPM. How do you use the proper treatments and how do you avoid maybe some of the compounded products that aren't as useful? Well, there's, there's three FDA-approved products out there on the market that has been shown to be efficacious and safe. And these are the products that should be used. Now, they should be used according to the manufacturer's recommendation. Now, we know that you know, not a single treatment or not a single EPM cases is generally cured in 30 days. We need to treat as long as there is improvement or potential for improvement, the treatment should be extended. There are three products out there. And then for each of these products, there are a few little considerations to take into account. Most veterinarians may or may not know this. So if you look at the first FDA approved product that was on the market, it's Ponazril marketed uh, trade name Marquis. This is, this is a paste that is given to the horse orally. And, and we know that, um, so there's two very specific aspects. Uh, the essential part is a venian should use a loading dose, which is three times the maintenance dose once on the first day, and that's to achieve steady state quicker. And it's also beneficial when the drug is given to actually give vegetable oil. And the idea of the vegetable oil is that it will increase the bioavailability, so the absorption of drugs. There'll be more drug available. So these are the two important steps for the pronazrial, a loading dose and add vegetable oil. The, the second product that's been licensed, if I look historically and chronologically, is a combination of sulfas and pyrimetamine. It's labeled under the trade name Rebalance. This is a product that, that was the initial product, not this specific product, but the initial drug combination that was used to treat EPM before we had the triazine. We know that this drug needs to be given ideally on, on an empty stomach. And if we look at treatment course, while most of the horses with the triazine are treated for six to eight weeks, horses are treated with a combination of sulfapyrimetamine are generally treated for a longer period of time. We're looking at, you know, 90 to 120 days. But it's still a, an effective, cost-effective treatment. 
the, the latest product that has been FDA approved is a triazine again. It's diclazarel. It's the same group triazine as pronazarel. It's marketed under the treatment name Protazel. This is a palleted formulation instead of being a paste. And it's the triazine with the highest bioavailability. And there's truly no consideration with this drug, um, with this product. Given once a day, there's no loading dose and there's no need to add any vegetable oil. So any of these three products will be the basis for the treatment. Now, the treatment is not just consistent of antiprotozoal. You know, it's the same with any disease. If a horse has a bacterial pneumonia, I'm not gonna give only antimicrobial drugs. There'll be supportive treatment, there'll be anti-inflammatories, there'll be other type of treatment. That's the same for EPM. We're looking at antiprotozoal drugs as the basis, we're looking at an inflammatory drug. What truly really affects the horse is the organism causes destruction, which leads to inflammation, which leads to neurological deficit. So the use of an inflammatory is essential. Venians will like to use two antioxidants. Vitamin E is an example, and there's a lot of supportive care. We want to be sure that these horses stay healthy, nutritionally hmm, supported, some balanced diet, and are kept in a safe environment. There are other drugs that have been used, immunomodulator have been used, but there too, I mean, these drugs are known to have an effect, in general effect. Unfortunately, there's no studies that show the benefit of any of these drugs other than the three FDA approved drugs. Now, if you're looking at, you know, convenience, maybe less expensive Compounded product, I would caution any veterinarian to use any compounded product as long as we have FDA approved drugs that are available, well understood, that are not back ordered because they have been events, recent events, where some of these products were misformulated and there was overdose of, you know, pyrimetamine leading to the death of horses. And Venians will put themselves in a very difficult spot because, you know, Venian prescribes a non-FDA-approved product and anything happens to that horse, the Venian's license is actually at jeopardy because the Venian is responsible for prescribing this treatment. So my you know, general recommendation is unless the product isn't available commercially because it's back order, Venian should not engage into any compounded product for the treatment of EPM. That's some very good tips to keep not only the horses treated properly, but the veterinarian safe from uh, legal exposure too. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about prevention, especially for high-risk horses. What would you consider a, a high-risk horse and what would you recommend? So if you look at, there's various studies that looked at what we call risk factors. We look at, you know, large number of EPM cases, or look at other neurological deficits. You can, you can find the prevalence factors or risk factors that may lead to the development of EPM. And then remember that EPM is a rare event, you know, considering at the total amount of horses that are infected with sarcosis, dysneurona, neurospirahusia, it's really only the tip of the iceberg that ends decompensating and ends developing neurological deficit. We know that you know, age plays a role, young horses. We know that seasonality plays a role. Winter is protective compared to the other 
time of the year. We know that a horse living on a premise where previous cases have been previous cases of EPM have been diagnosed is a greater risk. And that goes back to the environment. There's probably a lot of wildlife interface. There's a lot of opossum. There's a lot of contamination, water and feed. We know that the health status of horse plays a whole. A horse that is stressed, painful, has an underlying disease, is a greater risk. That goes back to immunosuppression. The use plays a role. So we're looking at high performance horses are greater risk. So if you look at it, you know, the, the, the prime candidate is your young performance horse. That would be the horse that, you know, if, if it's in the right environment, that horse may end, if exposed, may end developing EPM at a greater rate than, let's say, my own backyard horse that may be exposed to the same amount of infectious viruses, but, you know, it's asked to trot around once or twice a week. Use, age are some of the primary drivers. So they drive the immune system, which allows that organism to take advantage of a weaker host and invade the central nervous system. So how do you prevent? Well, in a perfect world, you move your horse to a place where there aren't any opossum. That would be right. That would be true for Sarcosystis neurona. That wouldn't account for Neosporachusei. Neosporachusei has likely a worldwide distribution because it's not dependent on a definitive host, it's dependent on horses. So wherever horses are, EPM due to Neosporachusei should be suspected if a horse develops clinical signs that's compatible with EPM. So if you look at how can we minimize the risk, you know, some practical tip would be do not feed on the ground. Do not feed on the ground because, you know, if horses are on pasture on the paddock and food is on the ground, then wildlife can actually come and contaminate the environment. Offer fresh water, ideally not from a pond, ideally from a, you know, a, a good protected source that isn't contaminated. Keeping wildlife outside the feed, feeding areas, outside areas where feed is stored is a great way to prevent contamination. So, the, you know, the whole idea is not to eliminate wildlife. Wildlife has a good purpose. Opossum are good. They have good purpose. Unfortunately, with the, with the opossum comes sarcosystis neurona. And, you know, the idea of eliminating opossum, which is a wrong one, is if, if, if one is eliminated, another one is going to take its place. So they have a role in the environment. We should sustain them, but we shouldn't promote them scavenging of feed that were meant for horses. So minimizing stress, protecting feeding area, protecting feed, these are very easy and practical ways to do that. Now, if that is not sufficient, and unfortunately, well, maybe I should say fortunately, we don't have a vaccine out there, um, and I can expand on that a little bit. So a vaccine would be ideal, but it's known that, you know, vaccines to protect against protozoal diseases are, are fairly difficult. And there was a vaccine with a condition license many years ago that and it didn't show efficacy and therefore that vaccine wasn't pursued. It's, it would be nice to have a vaccine that works because that would protect horses. Unfortunately, you know, if we have a vaccine that doesn't work properly, and it's a vaccine that triggers an antibody response, all the immunodiagnostic, all the serological tests that we use to really support diagnosis of EPM 
wouldn't be usable because if a horse tests positive, we would know is the seropositive status due to infection, natural infection, or due to a recent vaccine. So vaccination is not an option because they're on vaccine. However, there are different strategies out there for, and this really only applies, I want to emphasize that, applies to these high-stakes horses. The horses that are high-performance, maximally stressed horses that, you know, are exercising every day, high levels are transported, um, at a high risk of contracting this disease, would be to use a, you know, metaphylactic approach, which is using antiprotozole drugs at a lower concentration to reach blood levels that prevent neuroinvasions or inhibitory to psychosis neuron and neurospirhusia. And, and there's a little bit of work that has been done in this in this field, mainly with a triazine, looking at, you know, can levels of of um, this product be maintained with lower doses. And this, you know, recent work with the diclazril, the protocell, has shown that using a lower dose or staggering, meaning that in extending the administration interval and twice a week can lead to blood levels that are known to be inhibitory to sarcosis neurona. Now that doesn't mean that you know this strategy will lead to less EPM. It's just proof of concept that you know we can alter the dose and the frequency of drug administration to lead to blood levels that are known to potentially be effective in preventing EPM. There's, there's only one study that I'm aware that has actually looked at the effect of long-term administration of diclazril, and that's a study that we were involved a few years ago with Merck Animal Health looking at the administration of a low-dose everyday in weanling falls up to one year of age. And this study showed that at the end of this one year, 88% of non-treated horses tested seropositive, while only 6% of horses that received the diclazril on a daily basis tested seropositive. So we know that a horse needs to be seropositive in order to develop EPM. So it's it's an association of drug leading or daily drug administration leading to a lower seroprevalence and hopefully reducing the risk of any of these horses that are treated daily to develop EPM. But further studies are definitely needed here to actually look at the benefit of any of these metaphylactic treatments. And Dr. Busterla, is there any new or unpublished information that you would like to share with our veterinary audience? Uh, on, on which regard? In regard of the prevention? Just in regard to all around uh, EPM. I know there's a lot going on in several universities across the country, including yours. I mean, is there anything that you can let us know that that's, EPM is still being worked on? So EPM is still being worked on at all fronts. At, at the level of the diagnostic, there's still a lot to be done. Are there other markers that potentially could help us into supporting a diagnosis? We're looking at you know, additional blood marker. We're looking at 
inflammatory acute phase protein have been looked at while looking at specific marker of neurodegeneration that can be used in blood. So a lot of that parallels to what is done in the human medical field. There's also studies that are done on the Im immunity to EPM. Why are certain horses at high risk of developing EPM? And it goes back to host factors. If you understand the host factor better, potentially we'll be able to screen horses ahead and say this is a horse that has a risk to develop EPM, similar to what is done right now in the human medical field to screen people for you know their likelihood of, of a person human being to develop certain specific cancers that would be ideal if we could do this in in horses but we need to have a better understanding of what happens at that interface between host immune system inflammatory reaction at the level of the central nervous system there's also studies, you know, that are ongoing, that are looking at, you know, preventative procedure, looking at, you know, the feasibility to metaphylatically treat horses um, using, you know, drugs that are safe, using protocols that are sustainable for these high performance horses. So this is a, this is a very dynamic, despite the fact that this disease has been around for, you know, almost five decades, it's still a very dynamic research field. And, and the beauty is this is a, this is a great collaborative field um, amongst, you know, private practitioner and also, you know, many academic institutions across the United States and also on other continents. Well, this has been a great, not only review of EPM, but some new information and some insights and tips on um, how to diagnose, test, treat, and prevent EPM. So we thank you, Dr. Pusterla, for being our guest today on Disease Du Jour. And thank you for listening to Disease Du Jour. And a big thanks to our 2020 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. Please listen and rate previous and future episodes of Disease Du Jour on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Follow Equimanagement on Facebook or send us an email at kbrown at amedia.com. Disease Du Jour is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network. <laughs>